I've been really looking forward to it, and as the council has, and I think the timing is most perfect um, as it is all about this time. So if you guys will allow me to pray to open this up. Dear Father, we just come to you. We thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for all the hearts who are here, who want to learn, who want to serve, who want to love, who want to walk in obedience. Father, I thank you for this time that we can savor it. I thank you for Philip as he's prepared to give this message, to speak the truth and love, Father, to call us into um, a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of your wisdom. I thank you for each of the ladies here as they go out and they build relationships within the community, that we would be a light into our communities, that we would be salt into this earth. I thank you for your marvelous word that we can turn to that speaks to us, the revelation of God. Lord, I just thank you for Christ who came to live a holy life, who died for us, was resurrected. Now lives eternally, that's our advocate who takes the right hand. We just thank you for all of these things in the mercies that are needed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I have the privilege of interviewing our pastor. Um, and just as wisdom, there's a quote, as wisdom is the hinge that connects the glory in our hearts to the work of our hands, we just want to um, get God's perspective um, for our roles, especially in a culture that is so hyper-sensitive um, right now to gender distinctiveness. We have the opportunity to learn what that looks like and celebrate the goodness of our calling um, and bring others around us to, to follow us, hopefully, as we do that well. So first of all, Pastor Philip, thank you for teaching us and giving us perspective. And um, I know you guys have had a busy time away. I just heard how crazy. So thank you for making this a priority for us. And um, we have a lot of questions. That was exciting to see people fill in to the box what they're interested in hearing. So we're going to try to address all of that today pertaining to this subject. So just kind of want to Dial back and know in Genesis 127 um, says, so God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. So again, we just want to value um, and to be able to equip one another's image bearers. So that said, there's been a lot of buzz lately about women's roles in general for our culture. So um, especially in regards to the appropriateness of roles within church structure and ministry, but if you're new to this and you're not in, engrossed in social media, maybe you don't know some of the terms. So we kind of wanted to at least um, open by just kind of talking about some of the terms that are being thrown around and trying to define some main schools of thought surrounding gender roles, even within bodies um, of, of different churches around. So I'm going to ask you to start by maybe if you think that's appropriate sure. to start developing the idea of what complementarianism or egalitarianism is. So basically, there's two schools of thought. Um, the first one is what's known as complementarianism. It's that God has created men and women <clears throat> uniquely different from each other so that they complement each other when they are acting as they've been made in the world. And so that's hence complementarianism. They complement each other in how they are in the world. Egalitarianism teaches that God has made men and women essentially as far as how they act in the world the same, that there's really no distinction between the way that they're supposed to be in the world, that they're equal spiritually, which a complementarianism would agree with, 
and they're also equal in how they are to be in the world. And um, it's from those two views that you get all of this divergence that's that's going on. Now, to be fair, there's if we if we had time, there's soft complementarianism, and there's rigid complementarianism, and there's soft egalitarianism, and there's rigid and there's like these kind of shades of gray, if you will, of all of these things that sometimes get a little muddy when they get close to the edges of each other. Say a soft complementarianism might look sort of like a soft egalitarian, like, you know, it's like, where, do, where does the blend start and move from one thing to the other? And so there's been a lot of conversation about that too. Yeah. And so to be fair, not everybody's exactly the same, even when they hold some of these kinds of views. And so. I don't know how many of you know Sylvania recently adopted. Right? You did? Yeah, yes. It got, yeah, while you were going, I'm sorry. It got approved while you were going. Yes. <laughs> she was on the team. So. And she exciting that this is kind of a leading question. So does Sylvania have an official statement regarding members as image bearers with regards to gender? Well, we do, and um, I think it's Article 4 under the section of what we believe. Um, I actually don't have it sitting right here in front of me. I bet she has some notes. Cheat sheet, yeah, she got hand me the cheat sheet. Um, but essentially, um, we've identified that God has made men and women um, unique. Um, we're, we, we adhere to a more complementarian view in the statement that we have, um, and that God has made men and women to be specific ways in the world that we're not made exactly the same. And so that's the meaning that Sylvania has. So. And I, um, he, he mentioned Article 4, and so if you have a chance, I think Todd put it online beautifully, um, but it does say that God created human race, male and female, and that all conduct with the intent to adopt a gender other than one's birth gender is a moral rebellion against God's design for the individual and humanity as a whole, and therefore sin. Further, God has established marriage as a lifelong exclusive relationship between one man and one woman, and, and it goes on. So there is some really neat, uh, very specific guidelines that our Constitution now has. So... Um, so overall, um, within New Testament, Old Testament, wherever you want to start, like, can you kind of just list, um, and I know it's comprehensive, but sure. where females maybe were in leadership positions or in ministry mentioned throughout the church. Right. So I, I think it might even be a little more helpful to take one step back. And in Genesis 1, where he says, let us make man in our image. Male and female, let us make them. The language that's used there in the Hebrew Old Testament for man is not man as in a male. It's the language of man as in mankind, humanity. Let us make humanity in our image, male and female. Let them make us like us. And so because there are groups of people that I, I view to be very dangerous that, that want to say women are not made in the image of God, men are. And like they go that far. And um, shockingly, I actually had a conversation with a guy just a couple of weeks ago about this. And that's not what the scripture teaches. There is an equality of creation between men and women. We, we both collectively bear the image of God. And so there's a sense in which we have to start there because all of the conversations that we then subsequently have about roles God has assigned to the, the two genders must fall underneath the authority of there is an equal value of both in the sight of God as being image bearers. And so 
anything that's been said about what people ought to do or ought not to do is not it's not elevating one above the other. It's not demonstrating some sort of superiority. It's not demonstrating some it's not doing that because it's underneath the sense of the creative reality that men and women are created equally as image bearers in the sight of God. So I think we have to start there because if we jump to here's how God's made us different, it might come off as, well, that's better than that is. And that's not the case. That's not what God has done. And so um, now, as far as some distinctions um, we have in Genesis 2, this very intriguing story of uh, go name all the animals and Adam goes and names all the animals. And it says there was no one suitable, a helper suitable for him. And so God, you know, the story God put him to sleep, you know, did uh, major same day surgery uh, with a unique anesthesia. And he woke up and behold, there was this creature unlike any of the other creatures that were there. And he was overwhelmed so much that he gave a poem. First Hallmark card was written in Genesis chapter two uh, and, and been, it's been big business ever since um, that, you know, she's bone in my bones. She's flesh, flesh in my flesh. I will call her woman for she was taken from the man in the Hebrew. It's beautiful. Um, she will be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. So the, the word for man there is not Adam, the normal word for man. It's a different word. It's the, it's the word intentionally that dis- makes distinction of biological differences. And so, he, and so Ish and Isha are the two for biological distinctions between men and women. And he says, she was taken from, she will be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. And so the, and the beautiful thing about the Hebrew language is that any of the feminine words get softened on the end, usually by that ah sound at the end. So it actually has a softer sound when you say it. And so it's just kind of a beautiful thing that Adam is doing. It. But, um, and so there's this creation of the woman and she's created to be distinct from him. Uh, the, the language is used as help mate. Uh, basically one who fills in the gaps. Adam was made perfect, but he wasn't made perfect like God. And so there's a sense in which she needs him, he needs her. That's the beautiful thing. And so as you begin to march through scripture and begin to kind of see, this is post-fall though, that's the thing, is that every conversation that we then have about who should be doing what happens after the fall. The introduction of sin comes into the world. We don't have to have this conversation before sin comes into the world. Nobody had any confusion about what it was supposed to look like because everyone was bent toward pleasing God. I want to subject myself to the benefit of the other person lovingly and sacrificially, and I'm not concerned for my own well-being. That's that's the pre-sin vibe. And so after sin, the orientation is I want to be as selfish as I possibly can be for men or for women. It doesn't matter. And so now we, God has to give us this big litany of, all right, here's how you need to behave if you don't want to be selfish, if you don't want to be. And so this is when we start getting some of these other kinds of things. And so uh, as far as women in leadership, um, uh, this then starts to expose soft versus rigid complementarianism. Um, there are those who think that women should not be in any leadership positions whatsoever. They shouldn't lead business. They shouldn't lead in government. They shouldn't lead in uh Social circumstances shouldn't lead in the church, shouldn't lead in the home. Um, and the reality of it is, is that that's just not, it just doesn't seem to be what the scripture demonstrates. It just doesn't seem to be. Um, you have Deborah, the great judge of Israel. Um, you have uh, a, a vast array of very God-fearing women who did great things in the Old Testament. 
the list is actually too big for us to walk through. Um, you have a number of women listed in the New Testament. The first women to ever affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they were women from the tomb, um, which was unheard of. You know, that, that the witnesses and testimony given to affirm an event in that culture weren't ever women. And it was women who were the first ones to say, hey, he's not, he's not there anymore. He's alive. Uh, right. Yeah. And so um, you have listed in the New Testament, um, stressfully for many people, uh, some women as, as deacons, <laughs> deaconesses, actually is the language used in the New Testament uh, for whatever that means, whatever that looks like. That's a great debate to have. Uh, there are some people who think that one of the ladies in the New Testament, uh, I disagree with this Greek interpretation, but there are some people who are lovely, wonderful, God-fearing, evangelical, complementarian people who affirm um, uh, uh, Justia in uh, Romans 16 as an apostle. Um, um, I think that there's a linguistic thing going on there that maybe doesn't allow that, but that's the, the great guys who do that. And um, and so there's a lot of sense in which there's leadership. Now, the question I think that's being asked is where? Where's the lines? Are there boundaries? And so I'm going to let you keep asking questions because so, I don't want to answer stuff that I've not been asked. If I ever learned anything from my mother, <laughs> only answer what you've been asked. So. But I think what he was alluding to is that I think most of the the crux now of where we're being pressed as a church and Christians to affirm where we stand on this is really role specific to the church culture and structure. Um, and so we, we do have Paul's letters, the pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, where I think that's kind of where everyone gets the basic building blocks for women as they serve in areas of church life. So before we kind of ask you to flesh that out for us um, because there are differences in interpreting first Timothy versus first Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we, why don't we take a minute to kind of read those passages and, and then I'll just kind of rewind and say first Timothy three fourteen through 15, which is why we think it's a, a pastoral letter about the church building blocks that that verse says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So we want to discuss some of these passages and specifically mention how women can serve individually or collectively. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 16. If anybody, did you already pull it? Uh, I pull it right. 2, 8. 2, 8 through 16. <laughs> um, 1 Timothy 2? Yeah. Okay. First Timothy 2, um, we'll pick up on verse 9. Um, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. I think I'm going to go ahead and read the First Corinthians passage as well. We'll come back to kind of talking about the scope. Um, So First Corinthians 11, um, 2 through 16. Um, we may cut that. You can cut me short if you think no. it's too short. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 
11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. I'm going to go there. Uh, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as man was made from man, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So kind of a lot to digest, but I'm, I'm assuming probably you're not unfamiliar with these passages. So we kind of want to take these passages and, and ask Philip to kind of help us, like, is Paul defining a scope? And how do we know that 1 Corinthians 11 is not transcultural versus 1 Timothy? Right. Okay, and so all of these passages have um, a great difficulty with them. And the great difficulty is the practical examples we see fleshed out in the historical narrative of the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts. And so you have Paul writing things, women ought to be quiet in the church, they ought to remain silent, they ought to be subject and submissive to the teaching of the church. And then you have Philip's daughters prophesying and called called lady prophets, and they're running around doing that. And you have Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla seems to be more dominant in the relationship, particularly when it comes to the discipleship of Apollos. And so you have these historical examples of women who don't seem to be remaining quiet in the church. And you seem to have this very clear instruction from Paul, women ought to remain quiet in the church. And anybody who's going to actually be mindful of trying to make sense of the Bible is going to bring those two things together and go, what gives? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And so what usually happens, um, and this is where we all need to, to learn about our blind spots. What usually happens, and nobody likes to admit this out loud, so it's super helpful if we just admit this out loud and move on. What usually happens is we decide what we want it to say, and then we read it based on what we think it ought to mean, and we figure out a a way to get it to say that. Like, that's usually what happens. And so if you want women to be able to be pastors and teachers and to preach from the pulpit and that kind of thing, you're going to go to these texts where it says they ought to be quiet, and you're going to say, well, it clearly can't mean that because, and you'll figure out some way to get it to not mean that. It was either unique to the culture, it was descriptive for the church at Corinth, it wasn't prescriptive for the whole church, or you'll you'll do whatever. If you are very adamant that you want women to not be able to be pastors, not to be able to preach, not to be able to publicly teach or do various things in the church, you'll go to those texts and say, see, it says that precisely. And then someone will ask you, well, what about Philip's daughters? And what about Priscilla? And what? Clearly, that's not what that's about. And you'll figure out a way to be dismissive. And so what we have to do is we have to be humble and cautious. That's what we have to do. Like we always have to start with humility and caution. And so 
the Corinthian passage, in my opinion, is the more complicated of all of them. Um, because we know that the church at Corinth was having a lot of trouble. Um, it was a pretty messed up place. I mean, this, this guy was sleeping with a stepmom and everybody thought that was okay. And they weren't even in a marital relationship. And, and this guy was in church leadership and that they, they, they were so off base on how they thought things should be that a really strong argument can be made. And many great evangelicals have that the injunctions that he's giving about restrictions on people are just specific to Corinth. Like there's a lot of people who I trust that make that argument. The problem is that's not the only place Paul makes that argument. And we've already read it from Timothy. And when he's writing to Timothy, he's not writing to Timothy as the pastor of a particular congregation, though he was. He's writing to Timothy as one who's establishing other pastors and other congregations as church planner. And he's telling him, this is how you need to try to set the churches, up, not just the one church. Now, encounter to the guys who think the passage in Corinthians is just for the church at Corinth. At least four, maybe five times in the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, just as it is in all of the churches. So he's trying to make it really clear that what he's telling them is not anything different from what he's told everybody else. And so even if you go, well, they had a lot of problems and some of this stuff's really unique to them. And he kind of clears that up by going, this is how it is in all the churches. Like this is the way it's supposed to be everywhere. So really then it comes down to what do you think he means when he says women can't speak? Like, what does that mean? Um, because clearly women did speak. I mean, there were there were mission trips where he was on them and the women that were with him did some kind of speaking, you know. And so um, and so what what does that mean? Uh, and that's where the real rub comes in is what does that mean? Um, because even the head covering thing, everybody's like, well, that's cultural. Like, we don't still do that today. Paul makes clear what he's trying to communicate there. He's not talking about a headdress. He's talking about there's a way women have been made. There's a way that men have been made in this particular culture. A, a woman displays her femininity in this way, in their way it was a head covering, uh, particularly those who'd been converted out of temple prostitution whose hair hadn't grown back yet. They would cover their heads up as a sign of, I'm not in that anymore. I'm, you know, I'm trying to let my hair grow back out. Um, and then if a man were to wear a hair, head covering, he was being effeminate. So basically Paul was saying, when you're in a social setting, for sure, and definitely when you're in a worship setting, people ought to be able to tell if you're a man or a woman. For a trade, right, because he then follows it with the thing that is normative. Don't we even see how women's hair can grow longer than men's and that kind of thing? It's been scientifically demonstrated. I checked this again this week. Women's hair actually does grow faster than men's hair does. It, it really does. And so um, it, it's just there's something in the biology of it. And so and so Paul understood that in some kind of pre-scientific revolution way, uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I suppose. Um, but, but he even transcended it past the cultural thing of the head covering and said, look, we even see this with how the hair works, just the hair itself works this way. And it's a disgraceful thing for a woman to shave her head in that culture that meant you were a temple prostitute. And he said, it's a disgraceful thing for a man to grow his hair out and to look like a woman. It's, it's this, God's made us different. You ought to demonstrate yourself culturally as different this is how this should should be. And so even that is not a specific to Corinth principle. That's a universal principle. 
Um, you know, cause I had somebody ask me about it one time. So what does that mean for us today? It said, well, when you show up to church, you shouldn't look like a prostitute. That, that's what that means. And you, somebody ought to be able to tell that you're not a prostitute. And so, and then of course people get bent. Well, what about people who are lost and want to, you know, if, if, a, if a prostitute who doesn't know Jesus shows up tomorrow, we're going to welcome her. That's great. But if you claim the name of Jesus and you're a member of Sylvania, please don't show up looking like a prostitute tomorrow. So that's, that's essentially what Paul's saying there. And so, um, and so these are universal principles. And so the question then comes, and I think it's on your list, if I remember the list. You know, what is, what does it mean to not speak? What does it mean to keep silent? What is, what does that mean? Um, but I'm not going to answer it because you didn't ask it. So, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does yeah, it mean? been asked. It has been asked. Okay. All right. <laughs> if not, I will ask it. Okay. Okay. So the struggle then is, what is the restriction? Because clearly there's a restriction. It's listed in the pastoral epistles. It's listed in. And Corinthians, it's listed in a couple other places. Clearly, there's a restriction. We can ask the why of the restriction all we want to. There's plenty of why questions I'd like to ask God. He has no responsibility to tell me why he decided to do things the way he decided to do things. I'm assuming his answer is going to be because he's God and I'm not. Um, and I'll have to be okay with that. But what the restriction seems to be, and this is where you get versions of complementarianism. Because th- this, what I'm about to say all falls under the heading of complementarianism that we talked at the beginning. Egalitarianism does not think that there's a restriction. Women can do anything that men can do in the church, be pastors, preach from the pulpit, whatever. There's no restriction. So when we talk about restriction, we're talking about a complementarian view. And so there, there seems to be a restriction. What is it? And so this is where you get a divergence of views among complementarians. Some, and these are the rigid complementarians, believe that it means nothing at all in a corporate worship service. They don't preach. They don't read scripture. They don't pray. They don't sing. They don't make announcements. If it's corporate worship service, they don't do it because they're not to speak and to be silent. That's rigid complementarianism. And then you have all the way over on the far side of that, the softest version of complementarianism of they must remain silent if they're exercising authority solely on their own, but they don't have any of the restrictions that you would normally think if they're acting under the authority of the existing elder body at, who is present at the time. And so there are brothers and sisters in Southern Baptist life, and this is what the debate's about currently right now, who allow women to essentially what gives the appearance of preaching even from the pulpit on a Sunday so long as they've been invited to do so by the authority of the elders who are present while it's taking place. Now, in my opinion, that's flirting dangerously with no longer being soft complementarianism and moving into egalitarianism, but that's a whole other conversation. And then you have a wide range of views in between. Well, women can sing and they can pray and they can read scripture, but they can't preach. Women can sing and they can pray and they can read scripture. They can't preach publicly, but they could teach a class that had some men in it so long as if they're married, the husband's there. like, this is what I'm saying. There's gradations of how this looks, every one of which would technically be under the complementarian head. And so when I ask the question, what is the restriction? That's really hard to answer because it depends on what you're pulling from, you know, because none of this is addressing the fact that the scripture teaches that singleness is super valuable and a gift from God. And that there are plenty of single women in the scripture 
who don't have the husband as their head. And so how does any of this apply to them? Because all that Paul right now has talked about is, you know, the, uh, the husband's the head of the wife and she needs to be in submission to her husband. Well, what if she's single? What if she's Lydia, the seller of purple? What does are all of these restrictions lifted off of her because she doesn't have that? And Christ is directly her head because she doesn't have a husband. This is what makes this issue so complicated. I know a lot of times people want to go, hey, super cut and dry. It's real easy. See what it said that just said this. And it's like, and it's a little more nuance to this than that. And there's a whole lot more going on. So those are some of the ranges of what does that mean? And all of those could technically be complementarian, technically. So. Yes, ma'am. So in other words, scripture, you don't find anywhere in scripture where any of those versions can be negated. No, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, we're, we're, right now, we're, yeah, right now we're just touching on the general of how it is. Yeah, I I most certainly, my wife will say, I most certainly have a perspective on this. And so, um, um, yes. Um, and that's why it's not cut and dry. Right, but it, I'm just giving you the, because a lot of times I hear people very flippantly who are in leadership who should know better going, oh, well, this is just so easy. I don't see why everybody just doesn't see it this way. And they just get very dismissive, almost combative, almost arrogant of, well, clearly these people are just crassly disobedient to the word of God and they're, you know, and they just, this barking of, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't really know if that's how we need to talk about this because you can go back just not now, but the history of the church and see great and godly people of God, men and women, who otherwise you would consider champions of the faith who had vastly different viewpoints on how we were to understand how all this stuff fit together. And I would not dare look at any of those people from the past and say, oh, well, how wretchedly ungodly they are, de denying the word of the Lord. It's like, eh. A lot of times when you get really loud and bark like that, it's because there's an uncertainty behind your positions. I, this is what I had somebody tell, tell us one, uh, one time, jokingly, but it's serious. He said, if you're ever doing a lot of public speaking, the point you're least certain about, just be louder about. <laughs> the one you're least certain about, just be louder about, because it comes off with an air of certainty. But really, you're just being loud. And so um, and so there's a sense in which we have to deal with the complexity of the issue. Now, I've got some perspectives on this and there will be people who will disagree with me and that's fine. Um, but this is way more complicated. Now, I will go ahead and say now before we get into what I think about this. Um, I do think that egalitarianism is incorrect. I don't think God has made men and women to be and to behave exactly the same way in the world. That, that's really hard to grab from the creation stories. It's just, it's really hard to get there, you know, uh, especially the name that God gives Eve. said, I will, I will make a helper suitable for you. The language of helper, the one who fills in the gaps, that's already the language of complimenting. Like, I'm, I'm making her to not be like you. And so it, you're, it, you're really hard-pressed to go, oh, God made us to be exactly the same. Well, that's not what he said. Like, you know, that's one of those where you can kind of take a step back and go, yeah, no, that's not what that says. Like, now, how it plays itself out in sociocultural realities post-fall, well, that's a whole other conversation. But, um, but no, he made us to be different. And so I, I reject egalitarianism just outright. What version of complementarianism is the best one? How soft versus how rigid? I think that's where the conversation needs to be. So, 
not scripted for you before, but no. how do how do you as the pastor and our board of elders kind of tell us what it looks like to make a decision where there is so much gray and what version of right. complementarism as far as like um someone speaking right. who's a missionary at our church sure. or a guest speaker. So if if you were attentive to the the constitution that was just adopted you'll notice that it gives the most generic version of complementarianism possible. God made men and women to be different. They have unique roles in the world and in their marriage. doesn't define what those roles are. doesn't say how rigidly they should or should not go. The reality of this is, um, and one of the reasons why I'm the only one sitting here instead of any of the other elders, um, <laughs> is, is because there's actually some very minor and mild disagreements on the level of rigidity versus softness of complementarianism, even among the current elders. That's how okay this is. Like this is this, that's how okay this is. You can actually serve together on an elder board and lead a church and have a few minor disagreements about how far or short some of these things should or should not go. Now I will go ahead and tell you very plainly because I know some of you are very stressed about this now that I've said that. None of your elders feel that women should be elders or pastors. None of them think that they should lead in preaching ministry. None of them are so soft in their complementarianism that they think that they should lead in a preaching service under the guise of the authority. No, nobody's that soft in their complementarianism on our elder board. So, but those of you who got that really kind of on your face, just take a deep breath. You're cool. You know, no, no closet egalitarians on the elder board. I promise. Um, but there are some divergent viewpoints, even on our elder board, about should women pray? Is that a version of exercising authority in a public worship service? There's some women in our church who feel strongly about that one way or the other. Should women lead in the worship songs, like the musical aspect of a worship service? Is that not a, a manner of exercising authority? There's some disagreements about if that's okay or not okay or how okay it is or whatever. Um, and so even, even among these very godly men, I would have hoped that you think that your elders are godly men. Even among these godly men, there's some divergent opinions about how far, how short, how much. And so um, anyway, yeah, that kind of sort of answered your question, but not really. So. I'm guessing a lot of prayerful. A lot, yeah. That, and, so, and so when it comes to issues like this, um, this is the difficulty of pastoral ministry. Um, there may be something that you think is right. Hey, we ought to do this because it's right. I read it. And I know it's right. Cool. Let me go sit to talk to the person sitting next to you. Well, no, we shouldn't do that. That's wrong. And I know it's wrong. I read it right here that it's wrong. So now we have two God-fearing, God-loving, Jesus-exalting church members who are supposed to be in good fellowship with each other. And I think this is right and we should do it. And I think this is wrong. And we should never do that. And we've got to make a decision about are we going to do this or not do this thing. And sometimes maybe it is right. And the person who thinks it's wrong is incorrect and they need to grow. Maybe the person who thinks it's right is incorrect and maybe it is wrong and they need to let go of that wayward view. It comes down to a gradation of scriptural importance. You say, well, Women's roles in church in that scripture, it is scripturally important as far as practice goes. It's not nearly as important as the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, like the Trinity and the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ and the need to repent of your sins 
And so, which by the way, are all cut and dry. Those things are very clear. <laughs> the beautiful thing is the things that God needed to make clear, he made clear. And so the things that might can have a little, those things have a little flex on. And so the question then becomes, what's going to be the most charitable, gracious way to maintain good fellowship without wounding the sheep? You say, well, that seems like that makes for really hard conversations. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This is why occasionally it seems like your elders aren't getting a lot of stuff done. What are you guys doing? We're sitting around in a room going, you know, if we do that, it's going to make those 25 people really upset. And if we do this too fast, it's going to cause those people to like think that we jumped the gun. And if we do, but we got to get this thing done. But there's about a third of our congregation and I were close to us being ready to do this. How do we slowly, progressively move them to a place where they feel comfortable, making sure that this is the right kind of thing for us to be doing? So we got to do all this back teaching. Let's back the whole thing up and start from scratch. Let's kind of cultivate this in. Let's slowly start to inch our way toward not running the boat into an iceberg. And so that's pastoral that's shepherding. That's what you do. And it's really hard sometimes, like stuff like this. And so when we had interim, I'll use this as an example. When we had interim music and we had some great, wonderful, gifted, talented ladies lead the music, I had more firestorm behind the scene conversations with people about that than you would believe, really. Um, for men and women, not just men, men and women going, you know, that she shouldn't be doing that. To which we had to have some real hard conversations with people. Okay, why shouldn't she be doing that? Let's walk through why she shouldn't be doing that. You know, is singing preaching? Is praying being an elder? I'm not asking. I mean, you guys can answer if you want to, but I'm just the, the questions that they get asked are what is the restriction? Was that event a violation of what the actual scriptural restriction is? Or were we adding a new restriction? Because in our mind, we felt like that was moving too close to what the actual restriction was which there's a word for that, and it's called legalism. And we have to be really careful about that. Well, this, this thing makes me uncomfortable. The Bible doesn't care how uncomfortable something makes you or me. It doesn't care one bit about it. It says this is how it's supposed to be. Don't make it something that it's not just to feel comfortable about the way that you think it ought to be. Scripture doesn't let us do that. And so it was a whole bunch of really hard conversations like that, you know, over time and gracious and compassionate and trying to, you know. And so th this is the sort of thing that we – the elders, when we deal with this kind of stuff, that's what we, we have to do all of that. Like we have to work through all of that. And it's, um, it's really not easy on some issues. It's really not easy. So. Well, I'm exhorted to pray for our elders. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a lot of Romans 14. Like, a lot of Romans 14. How do you yeah. Okay. This one's kind of more of a nebulous, but how does our, Church safeguard against the era of cultural change pressing in on us. Right. Yeah. And so that's bigger than just this issue because uh, it also has to do with homosexuality and transgenderism and uh, sexual revolution. There's just a whole bunch of. And it's a very stuff. specific question about that later. Yeah. Too. Right. Um, but we have to first and foremost grab a hold of the foundational principles and practices of the faith those things that are not ever changing. And that is, and a lot of times people, you know, that they dismiss it as highbrow theology. Oh, that's just that ivory tower, highbrow theology. Well, that's the foundation that the gospel is built on. It's built on the Trinity. It's built on the incarnation. It's built on the crucifixion. It's built on the resurrection. It's built on uh, repentance and faith. 
And we have to safeguard that those things are not impacted by whatever cultural shifts are made. Cultural shifts are okay. They really are. A lot of times you should never change anything. Well, no, just read Acts 1 through 8 and watch when it transitions from being a predominantly Jewish religion to a predominantly Gentile religion. And you'll see that there were some cultural shifts that were okay. And by the time you get to Acts 15 and they have the Jerusalem Council and they're like, how can how can God fearing, God honoring, still wanting to kind of live in their Jewishness of the Old Testament Jewish Christians worship together with Gentiles who don't care anything about that? Like, how, how can these two coexist together? And you'll see that there's some cultural allowances for it's the reason why missionaries don't go and try to plant churches that look like American churches in Southeast Asia or Africa. It's just God has created uniqueness of culture. But what is consistent is the general message, foundational message of Christianity, and that should not get impacted by culture. And so if one of the foundational messages of Christianity, as far as moral practice goes, is, hey, God has made women, men and women equal in the sight of God spiritually, but unique in how he's made them to be expressed in the world. And then the culture says, oh, no, that's not the way that it is. Men and women are exactly the same. You have to stand against that because it's speaking to a creative violation of how God has actually made things. Same thing with sexuality, same thing with marriage. Same th there's all kinds of things that that dominoes out and touches. But you have to say, okay, is this, is this an allowable cultural shift? Or is this something that's violating a foundational principle of the scripture? And just as a fun example, just a funny example, um, you know, when... You know, like men who are good at the arts, you know, dance and theater and stuff like that. There's a deep cultural sense in America of, oh, that's a girl. That's a girl thing. Is it really? Is it really? I know you ladies know better, but I challenge men all the time. I say, hey, look, I'll tell you what. And I usually send them like a, a little five minute yoga thing to do, you know, that like all the dancer guys have to do. I say, do that and tell me how much you think that's an effeminate thing. I mean, and of course, they get mad. If they actually try, they get, man, that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, and so it's it's like, look, that, that's a cultural impression on men and women. Go Shakespeare. Yeah. Right, exactly. It was all male actors, right. That that's that's a cultural thing. It, we for, we often forget that when the um that the the heavenly visitors came, um, you know, to Sarah and Abraham, uh, she's one of the ones that helped slaughter the meat. When um Jacob was going to deceive his father. It was his mother that went and like gutted the animal and, and smoked it outside. You know, my, my wife almost never touches a grill and she's certainly not going to gut an animal. It's a cultural thing in our deal, you know? And so, but that, that's not a male or female thing. That's a cultural thing. But to then say, well, you know, men and women are exactly the same. They do all the same stuff. There's really no difference there. Well, no, that's foundationally not, not true. And so you have to kind of step back and go, am I safeguarding a cultural preference or am I safeguarding a biblical principle? And that's the question you have to ask. So. I appreciate, too, the, the order of worship that we're now doing creeds because I think it's so helpful in terms of safeguarding that we do the Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. We go back to catechisms that say the foundational principles in our worship service. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that boils it down to importance. Um, okay, so from the question box, um, just more specifically on engaging with transgender people, oh, yeah. how do we best build relationships without compromising our beliefs about God's creation of gender 
Um, specifically, is it wrong to respect their wishes about pronouns? Right. Okay, so this is one of those really weird situational ethics questions. Um, you know, everybody always thinks that the Bible is 100% black and white on every issue, and it's just not. Um, Proverbs 16 is my favorite on this. You know, uh, answer the fool according to his folly. Very next verse, do not answer the fool according to his folly. And so is, is, is Solomon co contradicting himself? No, Solomon is talking about situational ethics. There are things where if I do it today, it's totally fine. And I could be presented with almost the exact same scenario the next day. And if I did it the way I did it the day before, I would be very wrong to do it that way in that particular circumstance. There are, there are a lot of really gray things in the scripture. So, and the issue specific to the one that's been asked of, of, you know, how do you interact with those who are transgender? How do you interact with, um, you know, pronoun designations and, and those kinds of things? There's ways to kind of work around that where you don't violate your conscience, but you still demonstrate yourself compassionate. Uh, the plural usually works great. They, the, them, <laughs> they, them. Um, uh, I'm more of the mindset that the one that needs to be stood against is the one that's forcing you to do it. And so if an individual wants me to refer to them in a particular way, whatever their name is, I'll just drop all the pronouns. I'll just use their name. That way I don't have to get confused about how I'm supposed to talk about it. Um, but if a governing official comes to me and says, you're going to be mandated to forcibly say X, Y, or Z about people, they're trying to pass a law that's contrary to the way God's established things. I will be much more aggressive against that institution than I would the individual because the individual, even if it's marred and even if they're confused about it, the individual has been made in the image of God. They're one for whom Christ may very well redeem. And I may be the only Jesus that they see. And the last thing that I need to do is to create an unnecessary barricade between myself and them to be able to share the gospel with them. They're lost. Like that's, that's the thing. If they're telling me they're a Christian transgender person, we can have a very different kind of conversation because you can be more forceful with people who claim to have the Holy Spirit. But if they are a person who's obviously lost, Paul, I think also in the Corinthian letter, said, why are you judging these lost people? As if they have the spirit. They don't have the spirit of God in them. Of course, they're going to mar the image of God. And so I have to engage them as lovingly and compassionately and gospel or in a gospel oriented way as I possibly can. So so that what what can I do so that by becoming all things, all men, I might win some like it's not compromising the truth. of. The, if they ask me, I'm going to tell them this is not right. This is wrong. The reality of it is very few people are asking you if you think their lifestyle is right or wrong. That's not normally how they, hey, listen, I'm transgender. You think that's right or wrong? It's not how the conversation usually starts. You know, um, it's usually it manifests itself. It shows itself. It presents itself just through the way that things are. Um, um, there's a um, there's a young lady who's transitioning to become a man. It's obvious that that's the transition that's taking place, um, who works at a gas station right down the street from her house. And whenever I stop in to get gas, uh, she's usually working there. And I, I could be crass and mean-spirited, and I could be snide, or I could be pleasant, and, hey, how's your day? And busy, what's going on, you know, whatever. And there's a sense in which you just – Guys, we were repulsive to God. doesn't matter what we did or didn't look like and what our struggle was or wasn't. In our sin, we were repulsive to God, and yet 
while we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us and God loved us. And so um, this is what we have to attempt to manifest in the gospel to people. Now, if someone's going to try to force you to violate the standards of God, you know, laws get passed. You have to say this. You know, they're trying to they tried to pass a law a while back to make some of the Bible hate speech. You can't read these texts from the Bible because it talks about homosexuality or whatever. It didn't fly here in America. It has in Canada and places in Europe and some other spots, but it hasn't here yet. Um, you know what? You just violate the violate the mess out of those. Yeah, I mean, you just you go, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> I'm still going to say this, you know. And so, but as far as the individual goes, individual's not institution. Individual, someone's been made in the image of God, and they, and you have to do whatever you can get away with in your conscience without violating God's standard to continue to demonstrate Jesus to that person the best that you can. So. Um, kind of switching veins a little bit. Um, there are biblical examples of women in leadership positions such as Deborah, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, and Jill. Does Isaiah 3.12, which we'll pull up and read, does it speak to women as rulers and in authority as a type of judgment on the people because men would not submit themselves to the service God was demanding from the men? Right. And so there's a couple of interpretations of Isaiah um, 3. Yes. Okay, it says, Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the directions of your path. The larger context of that is um, those who were supposed to be spiritually guiding the nation were leading them into idolatry. They were leading them away from the one true God, and they were having them to pursue after that which was not right in God's perspective. And it seems from the text that God is saying that you will be so wayward that when your judgment comes, your oppressors, those who have victory over you in war, will be small children. Those who rule over you, those who you become servants to, will be women. Which, of course, in this cultural context, there would not have been any... Well, I'd say not any. There would have been, in the Jewish nation, few women rulers, few women leaders. And so that would have resonated with them because of that. Now, in some other context of some of the nations around them, they would have had some queens and, you know, different things like that. And so um, um, we we even have, you know, the queen of the south came to get wisdom from Solomon. Like, th- this is not non-normative for other cultures. And we know from the judges that at least on one occasion it was not non-normative for um, the Old Testament as well. This is one of the difficulties of biblical interpretation when someone is using apocalyptic literature, which is what this is. This is an apocalyptic judgment passage um, using a poetic metaphor that would have resonated with the people. There's no way an army of children could have overthrown the warriors of Israel. It's physically not possible. And so God is mocking how horrible their circumstance is going to be by saying this is what it's going to be like. We know that when this happened, their oppressors weren't children. It was actually an army of very large men (laughs) from one of the most war-domineering societies on earth that came and overthrew them and so and they and they didn't have a woman as a ruler they had a king and so this this is a poetic prophecy so to go to that and say then as the inverse of that and say well clearly if women are are in leadership it's a judgment of god but that's not the point isaiah is making here 
The point that Isaiah is making here is so severe will your rebellion be and so severe will the judgment be if I wanted to, little children could come and overthrow you. And you would have a total a whole society of only women rulers, which you've never had before in your whole history of of this. Um, and so now there are those who take that text, people I love and respect and revere, and they say, see, if you ever have women in social leadership, clearly it's God's judgment on the nation. When Deborah was in leadership in Israel, it was one of the most prosperous, good times for Israel. She was wedged in between, if I remember how the flow goes, between two wicked judges. And it was actually a turn back toward revival after her leadership time. And so clearly it wasn't a judgment on the nation that she was leading them at that time. And so uh, I think we have to be care careful about the spheres that God has created. There's three main spheres that God has made for us to operate in. And sometimes we have to have a toe in all three of them and have to figure out how to balance what that looks like. This one sphere is the family. One sphere is the church and the other sphere is society as a whole. And God has given different regulations to the different spheres on how they should function, like what it should look like. It's very clear that if it is a husband and wife duo in the home, that the husband is technically the head of the house. That's how that language is used. That's Ephesians chapter 5. We must never forget that Ephesians chapter 5 is in the context of all believers submitting themselves one to another. Being subject to the, the, the leadership of the husbands, be the head of your wife, do what? Love, and there's no men here for me to preach to, but love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Which, what does the next phrase say? By giving himself up for her. Real God-honoring Christian male leadership is not about dominance. It's about sacrifice. It's about making yourself less than what you are, which is what Jesus did. He's the king of heaven, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of lords the great high host of heaven, the second person of the Trinity. And he took on flesh as a baby, grew up and learned things that he created and already knew so that he could love this entity called the church. Husbands, that's where your leadership needs to be. Total denial of all the rights you think you have for the benefit of somebody else. So this leadership is not the way that it's normally pictured to be in the household. And by the way, I tell men this all the time. I said, if you would even kind of sort of act like that in your marriage, it'd be super easy for your wife to do what it says for her to do, which is submit herself to your leadership. Like it's super easy to do that if that's how you're going to act. Um, as far as the church goes, it's a little different. The scripture does seem, in my opinion, to strongly indicate that those who maintain the preaching, teaching leadership ministry in the church are to be exclusively male. Why is that? I have absolutely no idea. Like, I really wish I could give you like a, hey, here's a sensible reason why it is that way. I don't have one. Uh, most most women that I know are are smarter than the men that I know, just real. Most of them are balanced in their compassion more than the men are, and pastoral ministry requires a whole lot of compassion. Um, there's just a whole bunch of stuff about pastoral ministry that, that when you think about the way men and women tend to be, just as super sensible for like, oh, man, women really seem like they'd be cut to do that better. I don't know. You know, and so um, be a whole lot less infighting. I don't know. Just whatever. Um, a whole lot less lunches for really mean things said from a sermon because, you know, men say mean things in sermons. Um, I mean, I, I don't. But I mean, but, you know, I've heard guys do, you know. Um, anyway, um, but and so but it's exclusively male leadership in that role in the church which is not the case in the house because there's households that can't have single women. 
you know, I hear these guys talking about, well, these women are all coming out from the headship of their, their, their fathers and their husbands. The scripture lays out singleness as a, a valuable thing, not just for men, but also for women. And if that's the case, then you become the head of your own home like Lydia was. And, and you don't have male headship in the house. And so that's why I said if it's a married duo, that's the way it's supposed to be set up. In the church, it seems to be male only. In society, we have too many examples from the scripture of women engaging the social order in a leadership way, even married women. The Proverbs 31 woman, when you walk through this, what she does, she considers a field and buys. She's a real estate agent. She has her side hustle where she's spinning her wheel and she's making her products and she's selling them in the marketplace. In fact, she's so industrious that it says her husband sits at the gate and worries about nothing. Like that's what it says of her husband. He has no worries whatsoever, which of course we know is not true. He's probably doing some other kind of work of his own. Uh, you know, the, the, the word economics itself means law of the home because everyone made money from their house originally. You know, the remarkable thing when I hear people today talk about, well, women shouldn't work outside of the home. Well, if you're going to be strictly biblical, men shouldn't either. They all worked outside. They all worked in their home back in the day. They had their field and they had their cattle and they had their crops and they all worked at their house. And they had lots and lots of children because they needed more farmhands. You say, Phil, that's rude. No, that's real is what that is. It's way easier to work a field if you got a dozen kids rather than just two. So, you know, um, and so there's the sense in which you have these women going to the field to butcher the animal. You have the women going to the field and saying, hey, this is a better field for better crop than that one is. We need to buy this one instead of that one. They were all doing that kind of thing. Lydia was a seller of purple. Deborah was a judge. There's a sense in which in the social order, there's a little bit more freedom. Why? Because it's humans engaging humans as image bearers. And we see from Genesis that we've been created equal as image bearers. There's, there's this reality in which that's just true. And so um, we have to be careful not to take the restrictions of one sphere and try to throw them onto another sphere. And it bothers some people. Uh, I've been called a lot of bad names in my life. The funniest one has always been liberal. Um, I'm not real. This word does not mean what you think. Anyway, so, um, um, but I've had people say to me when I say, well, would you ever vote for a woman to be president? And I said, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, depending on who the woman is, <sighs> they just, you know, you're a liberal. No, no. no. So, anyway. We know that Proverbs 31 husband was sitting at the gate putting out firestorms about his wife's industriousness. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. He'd be like, why's your woman working out of the house all the time? That's, I'm sure that was a conversation they were having. So, anyway. okay, so this question, and then we'll wrap up one more. Um, but speaking of image bearers, can you comment on the Beth Moore controversy? Oh, yay. Um, is the fact that she's a female teacher the problem? Is anything she teaches heresy? Right. And then there was another um, giant, MacArthur, and with his <laughs> response warranted. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I, um, I told somebody a couple of weeks ago, I said, I was so looking forward to today until <laughs> I feel like I need to write a thank you note to Johnny Mac. Thank you, Johnny Mac. It's really Todd Friel's fault because he baited him. And so, but that's that, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, Okay, so there's two different issues going on, there. at least two. I was really like five, but there's there's two different issues going on there. So I'll start with John MacArthur. I'll speak male to male first. John MacArthur is a godly man. 
He has done more for the name of Jesus and American culture in the past 30 or 40 years than any other Christian has. Even Billy Graham. And you say, why? Billy Graham traveled the earth and shared basic gospel with people, and the Spirit of God drew people in for repentance. When it came to sociocultural issues that touched on the gospel, you wanted John MacArthur on Larry King's show answering those questions because he wasn't going to pull any punches. He was going to shoot it straight. He was going to say it plain. He wasn't going to be wishy-washy about it, and he was just not going to waver. And it's that you need that in the kind of world that we live in, okay? Now, are there some things that I take issue with John MacArthur about? Yes. One of which has always been my wife can, she's in the room and she's heard me say this for years. And so she can verify that this isn't new based on what he did with Beth Moore. I've always felt that, that, that very forceful stick to that he has when facing a dark culture, which is needed there, sometimes gets carried over exactly the same way into the church setting where there ought to be more grace and compassion. Depending on who you're talking to determines the tone of your voice. His tone, in my opinion, almost never varies. And I have to interact with people. I have to interact with people in different ways depending on where they're coming from. I have to think through my audience. I have to think through the care of their soul. I have to think through the benefit of whatever. Um, was his answer maybe a bit more um, aggressive than it ought to have been? I will say maybe. I won't say yes for sure. Maybe. It might have been. It might have a little too much bite on it. Most of what he said, I agree with. Most of what he said. I, there's some things he said that I don't agree with. He's more of a rigid complementarian. I'm not. I'm more of a moderate in the middle complementarian. I'm not a soft complementarian, but I'm more of a Women can do more things than we've been probably been letting them do kind of guy. Um, they still don't need to be the pastor. They still don't need to preach in the public service. Probably don't need to teach courses that over adult men. But on the whole, there's a lot of other things that we've kept women from doing. We probably shouldn't have kept women from doing. I'm more of that guy. He's more of a rigid complementarian. He thinks that all the three spheres are exactly the same. He would take Isaiah 3. I actually heard him recently take Isaiah 3.12, and I heard him do it before. And say, anytime you have women in authority anywhere in society, whether in business or in politics, is a demonstration that God's judging that nation. Like he takes this to be equal on all the spheres. I disagree with him on that. Um, but because we disagree with that each other on that, the way I would talk about it is going to be different than the way he's going to talk about it. And so he was speaking about it at that conference according to the conviction that he has and the view that he holds. And that's why I say maybe he was too harsh. Now, coming from his perspective, he was spot on. That's what he would say. From my perspective, I'm like, oh, I think your perspective's wrong. Therefore, I think the way you represented your perspective was also wrong. Um, so that's MacArthur. But what really people want to know about is good old Beth, Beth Moore. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, until here very recently, I love Beth Moore. I, she's done a lot of great stuff for women and evangelical life. Um, before about five years ago, she made, started making some shifts that I was uncomfortable with. Um, Beth Moore, um, for years, made it very adamant. She's not a pastor. She doesn't teach men. Um, and so kudos for that. Until recently. Till recently, she has opened up to a, in my opinion, too soft version of complementarianism where she accepts invitations on Sunday mornings to go and preach at public worship services and to preach to the whole congregation and those kinds of things. 
um, which I, I think is out of place. I don't think that that's what should take place. Um, but beyond just that, listen, I've got, I not only know of people who do that, I actually have some people who are friends who do that. Like they're actually women pastors. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not okay with it. They're never going to invite Pennsylvania. And they know that, like, the cool thing is they know that. They know I'm not okay with it and that they're not going to invite Sylvania, but I can still love them and still be their friend. Um, the problem with Beth Moore is not so much her expanding her teaching place in the church as it is some of the things that she's starting to teach. Um, she's uh, very affirming of this private prayer language, uh, special revelation from God thing that's starting to happen. A lot of her, and the thing is, if you're going to be a teacher, all right, cool, be a, be a teacher, but be a solid teacher. Don't say things or do things that might take those who are young and immature and weak in the faith to be confused about some foundational principles of the faith, one of which is this special revelation. When, you know, Jesus said directly to me, and he told me, girl, you better write this down, and, you know, and, and so I'm just telling you guys what Jesus told me. That sounds like open canon. That sounds like continued revelation. That sounds hyper charismatic, which is dangerous. It's very dangerous to say God's still telling us stuff that he hasn't told us before. Now, I need to let you know what he told me. That's very open prophetic. That's that's not safe. Um, her affirmation of known false teachers in some of the conferences that she's attended and, and her vocal affirming of them. Uh, Joyce Myers and Paula White being two of them. Oh, these are great godly women. We should listen to them. They have a word from the Lord. And every time they ever speak is something anti-gospel. And it's even though Beth would never say the things that they've said, at least not to this point, she's affirming people who are denying the truth of the gospel. That's a dangerous thing. I, w I won't do that. Yeah. If I got invited to go to a conference where Joel Olstein was, depending on what I was allowed to say at the conference, I might go. And probably one of the first things I would do is say, don't listen to anything I do just told you. Let me tell you what the actual gospel, like I would do that, you know, but I would make it real clear when I got up there. I'm really not okay with everything this guy just said. I wouldn't stand and go, oh, and Joel, great. No, wouldn't say that. That's the thing you do. Like, have y'all seen that exercise? Hey, you've got, you, you've been taken hostage and you've got three seconds to type one sentence on social media to let everybody know that you're in danger. What would you say? And mine is Joe Olstein is an awesome preacher. Like, like everybody, Oh my goodness, Philip is in danger. And so you're like, they're going to help him. And so I would not say that about him. I would be like, he's a great guy. I wouldn't do that. And so she's doing some of those things, private prayer language, continued revelation, the affirmation of, of false gospel teachers. Um, she's, she's really kind of opening herself up um, in an odd ways to some LGBTQ environment. She hasn't come out directly and said that homosexuality is not okay, uh, but she's also not said that it is okay. And when asked directly, she said, well, I might need to rethink some of the things that I've said in the past about homosexuality. So she's starting to kind of flirt with some of those kinds of things. So for me, it's less about she's teaching in mixed gendered environments. I actually know people who teach in mixed gendered environments who still teach the truth of the gospel. I'm not cool with them doing that, but at least the message that they're teaching is sound. She's starting to flirt with some unsound mess. I have more of a problem with that than the fact that she's standing up trying to preach before men. I don't like that either. But usually, sometimes those go hand in hand. And that's that's the greater issue I have with hers. Is she's starting to delve off into some anti-gospel kinds of things. So. Right. Content's a bigger thing. Okay. Last one for right now. How does our church guard against marginalizing women um, and not encouraging their gifts? So, like, especially for if a woman thinks she has the gift of teaching. I'm still in your drink. Sorry. 
How would you encourage someone, um, a woman in our church, who thinks right. that she has the gift of teaching? Or- sure. And and I think that that's real because the scripture makes it very plain that the older women need to teach the younger women. Um, um, and and I and I need to make my position clear. And again, there are likely a couple elders that might disagree with this. Some other people in the church might disagree, with it, and that's okay. This is one of those things that we can love each other and agree to disagree on. I think context is super important. I I don't think the scripture allows for a woman to hold the office of the pastor elder, which is the person that is predominantly supposed to be used for the public preaching of the word in a corporate worship context. My my, my details are very specific on purpose because that more than allows for Philip's daughters to do what they did because they weren't in a corporate worship setting. They weren't functioning as pastor elders. They were in an evangelistic environment prophesying, which most of the time in the scripture is not the foretelling of the future, but the foretelling of the truth of the gospel. Thus says the Lord, you need to repent. You need to believe. Every woman in here ought to be out there telling people about Jesus. I don't care if they're a man. I don't care if they're a woman. I don't care if they're, they're, they're confused about whether they're a man or a woman. You ought to be telling people about Jesus. And I really don't care. If a woman is standing out on the street and there's five guys that she's talking to and she's telling them about Jesus, you go, girl. Awesome. Do that thing. Um, And there's a sense in which people can have these gifts, the gift to be able to evangelize, the gift to be able to teach people, to to share. When it comes to the gift, though, because it's called a gift, the gift of the pastor teacher, that seems reserved for men. And I know. Whatever. There, there, there are people who clearly would be, I'm, thank you for your kindness and compassion in this room. There are people who are throwing things at me in other rooms, and so I appreciate you not having done that. So, um, but there are environments in the church itself, not in the corporate worship setting, where it is very sensible for a woman who has the gift of teaching to use it. And we have a lot of environments like that at our church. We have women's small groups. We have women's Bible studies. We have all kinds of things that are opportunities like that for ladies who have a lot of insight and a lot of experience and a lot of godliness and have been gifted by God to be able to communicate those things well, to be able to help other women. Paul, the one who, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, encourages it a couple of times in the New Testament. Hey, ladies, help these other ladies out. You know, do this. There's actually a propriety to this. Like the reason this works today is because there's 30 of y'all in here and my wife's here. But like if one or two of y'all called and said, hey, Philip, I'd love to sit down with you for two hours and talk about this spiritual issue. I'd go, yeah, me and my wife and your husband, we can all get together and do that. I'm not about to go lock myself in a room with you for a couple of hours and talk to you about this. I'm just not going to do that. And so there's a propriety to this where it's very sensible for godly women to walk alongside other women and to help them. That wouldn't make sense for me to be the one to do that or other elders for that case. And so um, there's lots of opportunities. Now, as far as marginalizing, it all kind of depends on what is meant by that in the question. This, this is the difficulty of pre-written questions without asking for clarity. Um, because d- does the person asking the question mean marginalized in the sense of we don't get to do as much as everybody else gets to do? So that it's the sense of how I'm interpreting scripture is marginalizing? Or is it because we hold to this more moderate to whatever complementarian view, there's less opportunities presented and therefore it feels like it could push people off the side. So it all depends on what that means. I'm praying and hoping, and I think the other elders, if they were here, would affirm this, 
that we're constantly asking the questions, are we doing all of the things that we can do to create all of the right and appropriately biblical opportunities for people to use their gifts to benefit the other people in the congregation? Now, sometimes that's much more slow going than it is at other times. And that might, that might feel marginalizing because um, sometimes pastoral care can feel that way. I've had plenty of conversations with people uh, before who say, I really feel like I ought to be able to do X. And I know pastorally X is barricaded by a lot of years of needing to kind of chip away some wrong viewpoints. Now, I could be violent and say, you know what? You're going to do X next week, and we're going to show them. Yeah, that's not being pastoral. Um, it's trying to help this person to be patient while patiently trying to walk the other people to the place where a person can do this without it causing a firestorm. That's the difficulty. Now, I don't view that as marginalizing. I view that as pastoral wisdom. It's sometimes we need to take the time to try to do things right and best. And the example that I like to use for this, and people don't like this example, but it's actually the best one in history. The example I like to use about this is the abolition of slavery in America. When Europe abolished slavery, particularly England, they did so slowly, trudgingly through the legal system. And sadly, people were oppressed in their slavery until they finally got all that worked out. But when they finally got it worked out, there was no war, there was no bloodshed, and there was a progressive system of freeing people to where they became full functioning members of society in the best way possible. So it was best for the slave owner and for the slave in the long run, even though in the meantime, it was really hard on everybody. So America saw that they freed their slaves. They said, hey, we ought to free our slaves. And in good old fashioned American style, you know what we did? Said, slaves are free. And some other people who weren't ready for that went, no, they're not. And it turned into the most bloody war that America's ever been in on our continent. And it still has social and cultural ramifications to this day of race relations in certain places because we didn't do the slow trudging difficult thing of going we know you don't need to be oppressed like this but we also know that if we do it really aggressively a whole bunch of people are going to kill each other so let's try to figure out what's going to work out best for everybody and do it real slow people don't like that sometimes they won't quit i want it right and i want it now you know and that's that's not the christian way christian way is love joy peace patience Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so um, as far as marginalizing, the elders have had a lot of conversations about this. I don't know how much the elders share with other wives in the room, but I go, Amanda, what y'all talk about? And I'm like, well, we're trying to figure out a way to do, like, ooh, that sounds complicated. Yeah, it's probably going to take, I don't know, another eight or nine years for us to get there. You know, and so it's, um, you know, um, it's why I'm here for the long haul, by the way. So it's, uh, we got projects going. I got to be here at least another 15 years to get done. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's. It's a slow trudge. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. We all don't always see it right. We sometimes hold on to cultural baggage that's not real. We sometimes trump the Bible with our traditions. And that sometimes causes people pain or people unnecessary restrictions. And in the process of trying to move off our blinders and open up opportunities for people, sometimes there's just a large passage of time. And that's tough. Sometimes that's just tough, you know. So, yes, ma'am. So these patient things that we are patient about would be basically a woman leading worship in the big service. Right, right, which we've done before. We've had people do that. Yes. I know, but with class, right? Uh, well, sure. Yeah, there was a little bit of there was a little bit of pushback. Um, uh, but 
and and I want and I want you ladies to hear what I'm going to say. Normally, what happens in the cultural context that we find ourselves in is there was pushback about a lady leading worship. There's pushback about a lady praying in the service. There's pushback about a lady leading scripture. Well, when are those men going to get it right? I actually had women saying, I don't think this is okay. Like some of my conversations, in fact, more of my conversations, this is true in this case, more of my conversations about women praying in a corporate worship service were from other women in the church than they were from men. And so this mindset of who's supposed to do what and what's proper and what's right isn't just this weird as our culture tries to present it. Well, it's just the men and women and everyone, these, these patriarchal mean men. Or just, there were a lot of guys who were, oh, hey, that was cool. And there were a lot of women who were like, what in the world are y'all doing? You know, and so there's a sense in which it's not always along the gender line either, that there are people who have different mindsets, you know, either which way. And so, yes, yeah, so some of that, what you're talking about is is the kind of thing because um, you've sort of asked the whole time and we're getting close to the end of our time. And I know we're going to open up for any ad hoc questions the last 15 minutes. Um, so my personal position, this is not the position of Sylvania Church. This is not the position of necessarily the other elders at Sylvania Church currently. This is not going to become gospel at Sylvania Church because we have a plurality of elders and an existing constitution that's awesome, by the way, um, that, that allows and disallows for certain kinds of things. I think the only restriction the scripture gives for a woman as it relates to roles in the church is that they can't actually be the pastor elder and therefore cannot lead in the public teaching of men under the authority of church which is predominantly demonstrated in a corporate worship setting, but is secondarily demonstrated in when official gatherings of teaching take place outside of the corporate worship setting in which men are present. So that would be like Sunday school classes or adult discipleship classes, unless it's a co-facilitating teaching between the husband and a wife together with men and women both in the room at the same time. In that instance, there is kind of a visual submission of authority to the husband who's also helping to facilitate the reality of what the, and we have a lot of classes that do that. Our finance classes often run like that. We've had a few other classes that have been that marriage classes that we've done where we've been co-taught by the husband and the wife together, parenting classes that have been that way. And so there's a sense in which, you know, she's going to be sitting there with her husband. She's going to, somebody ask a question. She, th- hey, well, you, you, and they throw in some stuff and that's fine. Amanda and I have done some premarital counseling and some marriage counseling with people at our home that way. And she'll be the one to, Hey, well, you know, and she'll throw out some things. I'm just sitting over there quite quietly. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And my, there's people disagree. Shockingly, there's actually people disagreeing on this, but there's nothing wrong with that in my mind. In my mind, everything else that's not that the singing of songs, the reading of scripture and the praying of prayers is not preaching. It's not. And so, and it's stuff that's been commanded for Christians to do who aren't pastor elders. <clears throat> like this is stuff that's supposed to be done by all Christians. And so given that it's a command for all Christians, that's not restricted to the role of the pastor elder. I'm totally fine with whoever doing that. I, that's me. There are people who very much disagree with me on that, who I love in the Lord. And we keep worshiping together so in the church and it's fine. Um, and by the way, that's what I want us to keep doing. The, don't leave here and go, I can't stay there. No, please don't do that. Um, and so, <laughs> see, look, Lord's like, I'm out. I'm out. She's going to pick the mic up and drop it. I'm out. I'm done. Anyway, and so, <laughs> um, and so that's my take on it. That puts me in a more moderate complementarian place. I'm not a rigid complementarian. I don't think women need to sit in a corner and be quiet and, and be pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen and have babies. That, I don't think. 
I don't have that viewpoint of women. I think women can serve in a higher social way than most rigid complementarians do. I think they can hold public office. I think they can run businesses. I think they can work outside of the home. Um, you know, I, I, Priscilla and Aquila did. They were emerging middle class people who traveled with their tent business. They clearly weren't working at their house. And so, uh, but maybe they didn't have kids. You don't know that. They might have been dragging those kids around making tents all over, but we don't know. And so <laughs> quit reading stuff in the Bible that may not be there, you know. And so, um, and so there's a sense in which there's a lot of things that women historically in the evangelical conservative churches have been restricted from doing that I don't think they should have been restricted from doing. That That's my take on it. Now, great God-honoring, Jesus-loving guys disagree with me on this. And that's, that's all right. That's okay. We can we can try to get there. So. Okay, Russ, I know that there are other perspectives, and thanks for walking us through yours. Oh, yeah. um, there's a book I would encourage you guys to think about, um, and, and everything on your resource page has been submitted. So, however, I think he's okay with most of the resource suggestions, but... I just kind of wanted to to leave us with some ideas as we're thinking about whether marginalization is real or assumed or intentional or unintentional. Um, Our response should include us as women asking ourselves, still, is God's word the authority for my life and for this specific situation? Um, Do I believe the leaders of my church are good and godly men? Um, We need to be praying for our elders. And if the elders need to change their attitude about something, do we trust the Lord to do that work in them and his timing? Um, And are we grateful to be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord? You know, and if you're not currently in a position where you feel like you're being able to execute leadership or use your gifts, um, I know the Women's Council wants to know how you want to be involved. We do want to do a good job of fostering and encouraging spiritual gifts in one another. But we should also be using opportunities outside of leadership to show compassion to each other in practical ways. There's always ways to love each other. There's a thousand ways to do muffins for moms and give meals. I mean, there's a thousand ways to the missions team wants us to be more involved. So, so just um, are we grateful to be doorkeepers and, and reaching out to visitors and doing what needs to be done? So in the light of the fact that you said you would be around 15 years, and I'm hoping 15 more minutes after this, I'm going to ask Mariah <laughs> to close us. And then if you have specific other questions that weren't addressed, is it okay if they speak to you for a few more minutes? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Mariah, do you mind closing us? Thank you. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together today as um, women of the church under the uh, headship of our pastor and ultimately under the headship of Christ and of you. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to explore together biblically, what it means to be a woman, what it means to serve you as women, um, to celebrate the unique way that you've made us, um, and to better understand how we can serve you in our homes and society and in the church. Um, Thank you uh, for your word and for the truth that it brings to our lives. And please help us to go forth from this morning of fellowship uh, in better charity with one another. And in your son's precious name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. And before um, y'all, crazy cornering Pastor Philip. (laughs)
<laughs> with or without me. That um, Ashley has something we wanted to.